Luke 7, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officers sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my servants, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church this morning, Chris and Emily. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This morning's story is this type of healing story, as Emily reminded us of in the welcome. And, and healing stories have this weird um, challenge for us as modern people. First, there's that question of miracles. Um, which comes over us in the second, which is um, why this one and not that one? Uh, why this miracle for this person? And to be clear, in Jesus's, in Luke's gospel, what Jesus said right before this was about loving your enemies in that end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we heard. Um, and this next thing is this healing of one who is an enemy of Israel in a lot of ways. The Roman centurions were those who sort of put Israel in bondage. And so as Jesus comes back from the Sermon on the Plain, when he has finished speaking, as the reading for today said, he goes and immediately is confronted by one who is outside Israel and in many cases is an enemy to Israel. So why the healing of this one? In this text, um, we're going through Luke's gospel at the moment. This one, in the year in which um, it does appear in the lectionary, which is the prescribed readings, it's the eighth Sunday of Epiphany in year C, which means you almost never read it because this year we only have like four or five Sundays in Epiphany. So to get to the eighth Sunday of Epiphany, you have to go quite a few ways. And, and this one has this notion of a miracle, an epiphany. Like, what is God doing both in this healing, but among the Gentiles, and also, which is Gentiles is the outsiders, 
not Israel, among the Gentiles, and also among God's enemies. What is God doing in revealing this teaching in this way? Um, But as I was coming up with teachings to preach on, one of the things Roosevelt had said to me, my daughter, this past week or so, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was talking about the job with Kelly, and Kelly said, you know, or Rosie said, you know, one of the reasons why, why you might be struggling is because you talk about the same things all the time. And I was like, how do you know that? You don't even sit in my sermons. You go downstairs. Um, uh, how dare you accuse me of such? So I sent her to bed without dinner, and then the point of that story is, no. Um, and so as I, you know, I've never talked about this story before because it's very sort of direct, is, is what's going on here? Well, it seems very clear that Jesus is, is coming and showing to Israel and to us that Gentiles are going to be included in this new thing that God is doing, even to the limits of Israel's enemies. And there's this notion, too, of, of what is this faith that goes on in this person? Why is this one um, that Jesus stops? We did this at Bible study, and Chris said, I love this passage, and not really enjoying this passage that much, but taking my nine-year-old challenge, I asked Chris, I said, why do you love this passage? And she said, because Jesus is amazed at someone's faith. You think about Jesus performing miracles, doing all these things, and, and it's got like this um, teaching moment to it because Jesus doesn't just stop and is amazed at the faith, but he stops and he turns and faces towards the crowd, and admonishes the people towards this kind of faith. And so the story has this way in which it challenges us into thinking through inclusion of the outsiders, um, Jesus's... Um, Boundary breaking and enemy love all in the same thing. Um, And then the faith of this one who never even sees Jesus. I mean, if you watch this story, we hear Jesus. We hear from Jewish elders. We hear from the man's servants. But we don't hear from the two main actors, which is really the man who's asking for the healing of his servant. So the two main characters of the drama never really appear. They're only voiced through other people. The main beneficiary of the drama, the servant is healed, never shown at all. Um, And so there's this absence here with this one too. There's a second way in which this story, and the one following it, um, which is about the raising of the widow's son, um, overlay these Old Testament texts and ideas on top of Jesus. So that reading that Brian read to us from 2 Kings is again about another outsider, Naaman, who's an enemy of Israel, and he has the skin disease. And you read the story, and it's like, how do we know he's an enemy? Not even with the full context of the story. They've taken a Jewish girl captive and made her sort of servant of Naaman's wife. So not only just like, hey, we don't like each other, but like they're taking captive people from the one nation and bringing them to the other. And it's in that story, which I think is amazing, it's the voice of this little Jewish girl to Naaman that says, Hey, there is a prophet in Israel who could be a help with your leprosy, with your skin disease. And the faith of Naaman, similar to this centurion hearing about what Jesus has done, goes. I mean, when I have problems, and like, I did start with the story of listening to my nine-year-old, but most of the time, I don't listen to people that are... um, less aware than I am. You know, you normally pay attention to the people who are closer to power, closer to sources, closer to wisdom, to say that this is one we've taken captive. Well, I'll listen to her. 
There's some faith involved in Naaman's journey there. And he goes to the king, and the king says, Who am I, God? Can I do anything like this? Elijah says, What are you so worried about? Have him come meet with me. And Elijah doesn't even meet with him, but sends word that he's supposed to go wash seven times in the Jordan, to which Naaman sort of thinks, Don't we have water in my own country? Don't we have better water than all the water of Israel? Um, don't we have Evian, where I'm from? Um, and again, his stubbornness sort of shows. The fact that he listened to the Jewish girl, but here again, it's servants that call attention to Naaman to say, you know, if he had said, go sacrifice, he, they don't say this, but the, the sort of illusion is like, if he had said, perform some grand gestures, you know, sacrifice 10 bulls, spin around 10 times, sprinkle the blood over your left shoulder, uh, put a T behind your ear, which is a joke from Tin Cup with Kevin Costner, if you don't know, and now take your swing and it'll all be straightened out, you would have done it. Um, but if he just says, go wash, you're resistant, why don't you at least give it a shot? He washes seven times in the Jordan, as he's told, and he comes out almost as a new man, is what that scripture told us. And so here in Jesus' story and the one following, we have this other instances of outsiders and, and death and stories overlaid from, from the prophets on top of Jesus. Jesus, too, almost doing them in more profound ways. Um, Elijah, when he raises the widow's son, lays on top of him almost like performing CPR and he comes back to life, whereas Jesus just merely touches the edge of what they're carrying him in. Um, with Naaman, there's an action that he's to perform to show his faith to be healed, whereas with the servant, there is no action. It's just the word. And uh, you've got to love the way that, that the, servant, or the centurion says it. Say the word my servant will be healed. And even more than that, we're not even given the word that Jesus said. He turns and praises the faith, and they return home, and the servant is healed. Those are many of the things that are happening throughout this story, the inclusion and all that. But I wanted to, to start both with this question of miracles and this question of faith or belief. What's going on in faith and belief in this scene and what it might mean for us? So the first quote that I have up here is from the back of the bulletin, which is this advertisement to say, it is there, good, um, to say, read the book with us. Um, this is from the Brothers Karamasov, but he's talking about um, how Aloysia is a realist but he believes in miracles. And what is, the, what is the point of his realism? He says, I fancy that Aloysia, which is um, the young hero sort of of the brothers Karamasov in a lot of ways, was more a realist than anyone. Oh, I no doubt in the monastery he fully believed in miracles, but in my thinking, miracles are never a stumbling block to the realist. It is not miracles that dispose realists to belief. The genuine realist, if he is an unbeliever, doesn't believe, will always find strength and ability to disbelieve in the miraculous. And if confronted with a miracle as an irrefutable fact, he'd rather disbelieve his own senses than admit the fact. Just pausing for a second. Um, in college, we used to have you know, debates, atheist, Christian, this, that, and the other. And there was always this point of like, even if we could perform something, how hardened are you to accepting what's before you? 
Like if I were to say, you know, um, throw that uh, container up in the air and it won't hit the ground and break because I prayed to God that it wouldn't, you know, when it happens, you know, there's plenty of ways you could explain that. Well, it hit at the proper angle and it wasn't going to break. You tricked me into a different container. Uh, it landed on a pillow that somebody threw out there. This, that. And there's all sorts of ways in which even confronted with things we can't explain, which happens in the modern world sometimes. I mean, you'll hear stories of people who often go in for, um, early scans for some sort of disease or something, and around their fifth appointment, while Christians are praying for them, it'll be cleared up, and the doctor says, we must have gotten it wrong. Um, oh, we missed something, the markers were wrong. And it, there's this way in which, you know, the realist, as, as Dostoevsky is saying here, has decided beforehand that even if his own senses are confronted with it, it's not going to matter. Even if he admits it, he admits it as a fact of nature till, uh, till then unrecognized by him. Faith does not, in the realist, spring from the miracle, but the miracle from faith. If the realist once believes, then he is bound by his very realism to admit the miraculous also. Here, he finishes with this idea that believing opens up the possibilities to miracles. If you shut down all of the miraculous, which happens oftentimes in a certain sort of realist Dostoevsky is proclaiming, there's no way for it to break into the world. You can explain everything away, and as he says, even to the point where it really happens, you'll just doubt your own senses to deny the reality of that thing. But on the other side, it's a different kind of realist in his mind that opens up the doorway to miracles and then can perceive them as such. Now, to be fair, the narrator of the Brothers Karmasov is not arguing that one is better than the other, just that we're living within these frames of what we think is possible. And so often we can shut the door to what we mean by that. Which brings me to my point, Emily um, raised the question of, in the midst of our sorrow over Kim, why this miracle and not the other miracle? Emily said, I believe we lean into our faith um, in spite of that. Um, I think, you know, we, we protest in spite that death still has say in the world. We're waiting that fullness of what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. And yet, this is often lost on us, I think, is that miracles point to something. In John's gospel, this is why they're called signs. The sign is a referent to something else. And so oftentimes we miss, and this is not to say this answers the question. Um, don't hear any of what I've said as trying to answer the question of, of miracles or um, why this and not that. But what these reference point to is that kingdom that we have our final hope in. So what happens for the servant is he eventually does get sick and die from something else. Lazarus, who was raised, is not alive today. The man with the withered hand may not have a withered hand anymore in earlier healing, but still passes away like all of us pass away. So often, I think we look at miracles sort of as a solution for our present and our present only. And this is part of what I was trying to address last week in the sermon around the poor and, and such that I didn't quite make clear is 
For the Christian, the invisible and the eternal carries a lot of meaning. That's hard in a world of full physicality. Everything in the instant. Everything right away. Like, there's, there, um, in the words of the creed um, that we say during uh, Advent and Christmas, um, the creator of all things visible and invisible. We often, whether we're thinking about the poor or thinking about sickness or, and health and these things, only think of what is immediate to us. But for the Christian, for the believer, these things are merely a doorway to that which is eternal, to that which is unseen. And this is where faith actually comes in. So much of, I think, my faith, modern faith, can often be summarized in what I know is good. People who go to church are actually happier than people who don't go to church. It's, it's, that could, you could laugh at that, too, if you wanted to. Um, um, my faith is tangible in the way that people care for me. Um, I know that people are near to me in these ways. Like, we can collapse our faith. I've reasoned, there was, I think, a point in my life where I thought I had reasoned my faith out enough that it was secure in its logic. The creator of all things seen and unseen. And to think that I had become an expert in the things unseen. So when God promises us a greater future in those beatitudes, or promises us as we have faith to see that while healings break into this world, there are signs pointing to the fullness of the world of the life to come, of the life everlasting. They're not meant to be permanently here in some ways, but they point us to that future of fullness that we reside in, that we hope for. And in that, we're drawn into faith and into the world in different ways. There's two different quotes um, from Pope Benedict that I'll read, and then we'll dive into the, the text shortly. But um, I've been reading his introduction to Christianity for the past month or so, but this one has struck out to me as, what is belief really? We can now reply like this. It is a human way of taking up a stand in the totality of reality, a way that cannot be reduced to knowledge and is not consummate inconsemerable Carla incommensurable with knowledge this is why Carla sits here to help me when I mess up those words it is the bestowal of meaning with which the totality of man would remain homeless on which man's calculations and actions are based and without which in the last resort he could not calculate and act because he can do this in the context of a meaning that bears him up to have faith is what he's saying, is to take a stand in the totality of reality. Luther, playing on this phrase, I believe from Isaiah, used to always say that if you do not believe, you do not abide. If you do not believe, you cannot stand. It's taking up the stance, and this is the faith, I believe, that the centurion has. He's taking up a stand in the totality of reality. He, because he can do so in the context of a meaning that bears him up. Centurion's also a God-fearer, which is often those outside of Israel 
who haven't become Jews but are admirers or believers in their monotheism and their ethics to some degree. He finds a meaning that bears him up. And the second one, and further Christian belief means opting for the view that what cannot be seen is more real than what can be seen. Christian belief means opting for the view that what cannot be seen is more real than what can be seen. It is an avowal of the primacy of the invisible as the truly real, which upholds us and hence enables us to face the visible with calm composure. I just love that phrase. It enables us, knowing this invisible world that we await, to face the visible with calm composure. The realization that that which shouldn't be this ill servant, that sick person, this dying one, is not all that there is, is what enables us to face reality with calm composure. Or in the love of enemies passage in the past, that keeping score and making sure all people are losers compared to me, which is a temptation in the modern world, I think even if you think you're a kind person, it's a temptation in the modern world to at least make sure everybody's like good but just a step below you. To say that in that world of fullness, we can confront reality with calm composure, knowing that we are responsible before the invisible as the truly real which upholds us and hence enables us to face the visible with calm composure, knowing that we're responsible to the invisible as the ground of all things. That which we stand on in this faith not seeing faith like this in all of Israel. That is which we stand on. If you do not believe, you do not abide, the realest thing, all those things, I think, point us in this story to the ways in which the faith in which the centurion is modeling for us is this way of standing in the world, trusting in the invisible. This is, say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. No magic, no coming um, to touch, no need for you to enter my house though I am unclean. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jumping into the text real fast, there was a centurion servant whom his master highly valued was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews asking him uh, to come and heal his servant. One of the benefits of the centurion is he knows the one who can help. And one of the, I think, interesting thing about Luke's gospel is it's often those who have affections for other people that bring about healing. It's often those like the men who rip open the roof and lower their crippled friend in front of Jesus. It's often those acting as intercessories that can bring about healing. The man is not seeking healing for himself, but he can, he's seeking healing for a servant or slave, which is a different complex question of the ancient world that he has affections for. And this is, you know, as a servant, this is one he could say, bring in the next one. But he has affections for them. And so he seeks help from the one whom he knows can help. 
And so he sends these Jews to go ask him. He doesn't ask himself, but he sends ones whom he views as in Israel. What happens is they come to Jesus, they plead with him earnestly, this man deserves to have you do this because, you're lo- because he loves your nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. If you have any Luther or Lutheranism in you, this man deserves this, cause you to go, mm, no. None of us deserve the gift that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Um, this is a workspace religion that they're advocating here. This man does not earn anything. We are all sinners in the hands of God. Um, we have all fallen short. And yet, I think what they say is this man is one who has seen what God has been doing in Israel. While not being born a Jew, he sees what we have and he loves what we embody in the world as God's people. So much so that he has built a concrete sign of our visible reality. He's commended as such. But what's interesting, again, perhaps the Lutheran lives out, this man deserves to have you. The man's own words, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Man's servants come out and give this word to Jesus. What I think we find in this instance, which I think is quite amazing, is this people may speak highly of you, rightfully or wrongfully, but how do you know yourself? And I was listening to an interview with uh, Matthew Crawford this week. Um, and they were talking about how this new humanism that sees ourselves mainly as political beings, as choosing the right things and all these sort of things, is taking over. And the, the person interviewing him says, um, perhaps we need a new way of understanding what a human is to confront this other new way. And, and Crawford says, or maybe we need an old way. And it, he goes on to say, in an old way, um, uh, he uses the line from Solzhenitsyn, which I use often, but that there's a, the line between good and evil runs between every heart. And any person who wants to rid the world of evil must be willing to cut out half their own heart. Part of what he proposes as a solution is that people begin to know themselves again in their own brokenness and fallenness. I aim to extinguish the world from evil. Believed wholeheartedly without examining yourself, you can project onto everything else. But what that older knowledge of humans says is that it resides within you as well. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I deserve to not have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Um, this is the words from communion in the Catholic Church. Uh, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Uh, the question is from the commentator who brought this. Do I receive communion with a faith like that of the centurion? Which is the type of question I don't like asking. I don't think rhetorically. It's bad preaching in my opinion, but I left it up there because maybe it is and I'm wrong. Um, uh, but that this prayer is part of receiving communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, my interior, the disorder that resides within my soul, my heart which has its own evil. But say the word and my soul might be healed. 
he was far off to the house when the Syrian friends to him were going backwards a little bit. Um, but say the word of my servant for we healed. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. This man is a commander of troops and he has this understanding of the way authority works in the world. Second, fifth point of the sermon is that we do live in a crisis of authority and hierarchy in some ways. And so often as we flatten our society, whatever good or ill that might be, we flatten our analogs, our our metaphors or ways of also understanding God. Um, To flatten parent to, to friend, to flatten boss, to we're all just a family here and we love each other, which isn't true because you get paid and they will fire you. Um, But all these ways in which we flatten the modern world to make it seem non-authoritative and non-hierarchical, I think. Um, Again, I can't, I don't have an idea of what um, entire good might come of that. I think as a person of sort of a conservative bent, I worry about those new things. But I will say that it makes it hard to only have one left. If you get rid of all those, but you're like, ah, but God is different than us, it makes it hard for you to understand that because you don't have the other tangible ways of understanding that. I had a friend who was a pastor in California during the pandemic, and they were planning worship at home with their kids. And he said to me, Matt, I I want my kids to be engaged, and so um, we're going to have them pick all the parts of the liturgy and the process and this, that, and the other. And I said, I think that's great and wonderful. Um, Worship from home sounds miserable, which... Um, but I said, he was in California, it was high lockdowns, but I, I said, you know, I think having your kids involved is good, but to have your, you two as parents take responsibility and charge for some part of the service that is not adaptable to their whims, but is, but is in some sense um, guarded or cherished by you two so that it remains the center. I propose that they make that communion Um, But they have sort of this deference that the kids are engaged, this is fun, you can pick the music, but there's a moment at which there's some reality of authority, of hierarchy and difference, that actually is engaged in this process. So much so that they know that in worship, we're also doing that to God. We're also allowing ourselves to be displaced in some way by one who is greater than us. And he said, that's a terrible idea. We're never going to do that. No. <laughs> he said, that's, that's a good idea. I'll think about that. And I had a call with him as it was the pandemic, so all I did was call my friends and bug them um, uh, a couple weeks later. And I said to him, how's it going, this, that, and the other? And he said, that has been one of the best parts of our service together because the kids bring their excitement and energy to the, to the peripheries, and then we have this moment of stillness and pause where we kind of center all that energy, don't dissipate it, but center that energy into something else. The centurion and us, I think, need this idea of there are places and people who say go and he does this and come and this one comes, and I say to the servant, do this and he does it. So you say the word. God is the one who can say the word and dissipate illness and sickness and provide healing. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning the crowd following him, he said to them, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men he sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus 
as we said, is amazed by the faith of this one. He announces this amazement to the crowd. And in this way, there's another aspect of the creed to end the service with, is that this man's relationship to Jesus, we can mirror as our own. We've heard about Jesus as one who heals. But he sits, as we say, um, at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus' place now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, like the centurion, we can send word through our prayers to God. But he doesn't come into our houses as the same way the centurion did, or the centurion did not receive him into his house. But that Jesus is one whose power and authority extends beyond being in our places and touching the sick. But through saying a word, can do so. And so it is our faith that can be like this. I mean, we may think it's huge to say, I tell you, I've not even found such great faith in even all of Israel. But so far, what this great faith is, I know who can heal. I know the chosen people of God whom I stand on. We, the church, stand on the gifts of the Jews and of Israel. I know that I am unworthy to have this one come into my house. But I know that he has the power to do so. I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. So faith as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, is the place at which the church finds itself today. May we become the people who can step into that with boldness, knowing that these point to the reality, creator of invisible and the visible and the invisible, that is to come in the fullness of time. Let us pray. God, our Father, we send word to you for healing, for help, to be near us in our distress. May you come near to us in those places, but expand our hearts and our faith and belief to know that where we are standing in those pleas,